um, how is that psalm useful in the life of a believer? Well, I'll give you just one way. As you sing that, maybe take it home and, and, and meditate it in your own personal worship. It's useful when you sing these words to say that because of Christ, I will never have to say those words personally. That He endured this uh, forsakenness in my behalf. And as I sing them, I reflect on Him and remember that these words will never be mine because His blood cleanses me from all my sins. Well, uh, our sermon text this morning, we're uh, turning the page into Matthew chapter 13, and we have written there verses 1 through 23. Um, I want to focus this morning <clears throat> on Matthew chapter 13. We're going we're gonna to read uh, verses 1 through 17, but we're going to focus on 10 through 17. So doing kind of a weird thing, I'm going to skip to the middle uh, and then we're going to come back next week and think about the parable of the sower. And the reason that we're doing that is because in verses 10 through 17, Jesus teaches us why he teaches in parables. So we'll learn that and then come back to the parable itself. But let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1. This is God's word. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched and since they had no root they withered away other seeds fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain some a hundredfold some 60 some 30 he who has ears let him hear then the disciples came and said to him why do you speak to them in parables and he said answered them to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, a man by the name of Aesop tells an old story about a fox and a bunch of grapes, and it goes this way. The fox 
is walking through the woods one day when he looks up into a tree and high up in the branches he sees that there's a cluster of grapes and the grapes are very ripe and he can just imagine those grapes as he eats them sort of bursting in his mouth and the juice uh, running down his throat. And so he gazed longingly at these grapes and he made up his mind that he was going to get them for himself. So he started off by jumping flat-footed And of course, he fell way short of getting the grapes. He said, I know what I'm going to do. I'll back up. So he gets, he backs up and he gets a running start and he jumps up toward the grapes and he still doesn't reach them. Well, as all, all stories go, he tries a third time and he backs up and he gets a running start and he jumps into the air, clamp, no grapes, and he falls back, uh, down to the ground And he sat and he looked now, he looks up at the grapes in disgust. And the fox, he says to himself, what a fool I am. Here I am wearing myself out to get a bunch of sour grapes that are not worth gaping for. And off the fox walked very scornfully. Now, Imagine after I told you that story, I said, he who has ears, let him hear. In other words, I'm communicating to you that that story contains a very important truth. And that was the end. I wonder, might you come to me and say, okay, tell me about the fox and the grapes. What exactly did that mean? Or would you be content to say, well, That was a nice story. I wonder what's for lunch. Oddly, after Jesus told the parable of the the sower, and remember, only the parable, not the meaning, the crowds were content to say, that was a nice story. What's for lunch? Only the disciples and perhaps a handful of others approached Jesus and said, okay, now tell us what that meant. And that scene is important. That scene is important. In Mark 4 we read, and when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And so when there's a break in the action, so to speak, um, the 12 disciples and a handful of others approached Jesus to say, teach us, what exactly did that mean? Specifically, Matthew notes here that Jesus, did you see it? Taught them many things in parables. That's in chapter 13, verse 2. In total, chapter 13 of Matthew includes seven parables. There's the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, the mustard seed and the leaven, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great value, the dragnet, and the new and old treasures. And as you hear those titles, some of you, they are registering with you and you remember hearing these stories, these parables yourselves. But these weren't the first uh, lessons in parable that Jesus had told. Remember, uh, he said before in chapter 9, he said, Um, That the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers into 
into the field. That, that was a parable. Remember, he also told a parable in chapter 11 of the children who were sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates. And so here come the disciples hearing these over and over and over again, seemingly, according to Matthew 13.10, asking Jesus this important question. Why do you speak in parables to the crowd? When you and I studied the parables in Sunday school, if your teacher was like mine, she said something like this, Jesus taught the parables so that it would help people to understand heavenly principles. And and there is definitely some truth in that. We remember these titles. We remember what they mean to us and, and their important principles. Matthew Henry defines the parable this way. He says, a parable is a shell that keeps good fruit for the diligent, but keeps it from the slothful. The disciples' question hints at this. And this question probably gives us some insight into Jesus' relationship with the crowds in contrast to his relationship with the disciples. Jesus taught his disciples directly. Consider what he said to them in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you think of Matthew chapters 5 to 7? Very direct teaching warning them, teaching them about fasting and prayer and giving. Or in chapter 10, when he gave them their commission and he said to them, look, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Men are going to drag you before governors and judges, but don't worry when that happens, I'll give you what to say. He taught them very directly. The disciples were confused. Why Jesus, when addressing the crowds, uses parables instead. And so many of them. Why isn't he direct with the crowds like he is with the disciples? So put simply, as we look at the parables this morning and the reason for them, by teaching in parables, Jesus points to three things. The sovereignty of God, the judgment of God, and the kindness of God, or his pleasure in the disciples. And so the first thing that we notice in these purposes of the parables, the first purpose is to demonstrate God's sovereignty. Remember, we're picking up with verse 10 uh, of Matthew chapter 13. Jesus, here he graciously answered the disciples' question by saying, notice what he says there in verse 10. Or verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. And just notice here at the very outset that Jesus uses a lot of passive verbs in explaining why he taught in parables. In other words, he's, he's referencing the disciples and the crowds as passive audiences upon which God bestows either judgment or favor. Now here, Jesus taught the disciples that understanding of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, now get this, is a gift. It is something given. Understanding is a gift that is given. 
In other words, he spoke directly to the disciples and in parables to the crowds because that was God's sovereign determination. And so here it's important for us to understand, I think, just just maybe as a brief aside here, the nature of knowledge. The nature of knowledge. In a sense, you and I are swimming in an ocean of facts. Your life is, as it were, swimming across the English Channel, journeying from one end to the other, and the water that you swim in are the facts of God's creation. Every one of them. Every fact, every truth is a truth that is created and determined by God. Water is wet because God determined that it should be wet. God Himself, He has perfect knowledge both of Himself and of the reality that He has created. He determined it after all. You and I, now think about this. You and I are both part of creation. You are a created reality. And you are an observer of created reality. And it is God's will. He has created you specially to see His creation and to marvel at His might, His power, and His wisdom in everything that He's created. Some of you, you take trips. You go to Texas to to see the blue bonnets and, and you see these wonderful things that the Lord has made and He intends for you to do that and to marvel at those things. This is why He... He has made you, as we think about our ability to know things, however, immediately what comes to mind is a limitation. Did you know that you and I have two limitations when it comes to looking at a blue bonnet and understanding its true purpose and reality? The first limitation that you and I have, Scripture teaches us that we do not fully comprehend all the facts of the universe because we are created beings. God is infinite. His wisdom is infinite. It has no end. It has no boundary. But you and I do. We don't know all the facts. And this is not sinful. This is not a sinful limitation. Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist confessed, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I, I cannot attain it. This is what many of us might say as we're approaching uh, a quiz or an examination in school. This is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain this knowledge. Here, the psalmist is talking about the distinction between himself and the Creator. You know all things. You're infinite. I don't. Job related a similar sentiment when he said, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. There, Job referred to God's government of his creation. He could not grasp the mind of the Creator. And in Psalm 40, verse 5, we read, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. 
as we interact with creation, we humbly acknowledge we don't know everything that there is to know. Nor will we ever, nor will any man ever fully understand all of the facts of the created universe. We will always have questions. And listen, even into eternity in Christ's consummated kingdom, when you receive a glorified body and a glorified mind, you will go on learning new ways and new reasons to magnify God in praise. This will be an eternal truth. And so the first reason that as we think about knowledge, we recognize that our minds are finite. That's not a sinful limitation, but it is a limitation. The second reason that men do not fully acknowledge the truth is that sin has blinded us to reality. This is why a man can go and pluck a blue bonnet and take it into his laboratory and pull a leaf off and he can put it into his uh, equipment, look at it under a magnifying glass, even an electron uh, microscope, and he can look at the details of that and he can say to himself, there is no God. When we think about the effects of God's punishment of Adam's sin, listen, the first thing to acknowledge is Adam's relationship to reality became distorted. Some of you have, maybe you've spent time, you've gone to a carnival, you've eaten the food, and that's already affected your stomach, and then you go into the fun house with the various mirrors, and their objective is to distort reality. There's the curved one that makes your legs look like they're 10 feet tall, and your torso look like it's three inches tall. They distort reality. This is the effect of sin on your mind. Adam's desires became corrupt and his understanding became dark. So that in Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 18, Paul wrote, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. You notice how Paul repeatedly emphasized the mental effect of sin? Without the work of the Holy Spirit, we are futile in our thinking, and the Bible says, ignorant. Sin has blinded men's eyes. By nature, we don't perceive the truth. But we think we do. In fact, usually the blinder we are, the more arrogant we can be. The stronger sin is in your life, the less teachable you are. Therefore, the Spirit's saving work is to remove our blindness and enable us to acknowledge what is true. Now, that is very important. The Spirit's work, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is to open your heart and mind, enabling you to acknowledge and live according to the truth. And, and so it's this reason, for instance, that we will make a distinction between a Christian school and a Christian education. It's one thing to establish a school that acknowledges or loosely holds to some sort of Christian morality and belief. It's another thing entirely, think about this, to teach children that all truth 
from biology to the base clef reveals the wisdom and power of Almighty God to the praise of our mediator, Jesus Christ. You can see the distinction there. As one theologian notes, the purpose of God's revelation, you think we're swimming across that English channel in all of the facts that God has input into his revelation of himself. The purpose of God's revelation, according to Scripture, is precisely that human beings may know God and so receive eternal life. You finished that adventure across the English Channel swimming when you come to know the triune God and receive eternal life. As one theologian, another theologian puts it up. I've read that already. The purpose of education, therefore, is to magnify Christ our Creator. And so you can ace a standardized test, but you do not understand truth until you end in doxology. So anytime you learn a new fact, do you know what you're doing? You are experiencing the grace of God in your life no matter what that fact is. When you learn that you remove a a lug nut from your car by lefty-loosey, righty-tighty, this is a fact of God's created universe. And the first thing we might say is that God gives to regenerate man, do you know what it is? Knowledge. When you learn, you are enjoying the mercy of God. And this is especially true of salvation. God shows His grace to us when He removes our blindness so that we may see the glory of Jesus Christ. It is this knowledge He chose to impart to His disciples. Jesus said God had given them the gift of knowing the secrets of the kingdom of God. And he went on to assure them in verse 12, saying, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. Now, what are the secrets to which Christ is referring? What are the secrets? Well, these are the special details about God's redemptive plan and the future of the world. This is what Christ will reveal to his disciples. Scripture teaches us that although God began revealing these secrets from the very beginning, they remained in some sense vague. Peter explains that the prophets foretold things that they didn't fully understand. And that even the angels longed to look into the mystery of salvation. Did you know that? And an old Jewish commentary notes Some of the sages state that Elijah will appear previous to the advent of Messiah, but all these matters cannot be determined by human intelligence. How and when they will take place. When is the Messiah coming? They were even a mystery to our prophets. And the sages had no tradition thereon. Jesus taught the disciples that he was revealing these secrets to them. That's a gift. 
And they should always recognize this revelation was God's gracious gift to them. Never take it for granted, as it were. And they should especially note that God sovereignly chose not to give the same gift to the crowds of Israel. Therefore, the parables first show us that God sovereignly dispenses knowledge. Not in the sense that He he unveils it per se, but He dispenses knowledge by enabling us to grasp it, to receive it. And the second thing the parables demonstrate is God's judgment. In the Gospels, withholding the knowledge of salvation is a form of God's judgment. And this fits in with our whole context. Remember, as we go back earlier in Jesus' instruction of the disciples, he he has said, he has come as a judge. He has pronounced woes upon the cities who received his, his, who saw his mighty works and didn't repent. And so this all comes together as Jesus begins to say, look, the reason that I have teaching in parables is because it hasn't been given to Israel to know. Now, God gave Israel significant blessings, didn't He? We read of one in Deuteronomy 11. He gave them Moses. In Romans 9, Paul recounts, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So despite this, despite this, all that God had given them throughout redemptive history, Christ appears on this scene and is rejected. They see His mighty works, and they don't repent. And so for this reason, God had given them over to a spiritual blindness, a dullness of heart. Their hearts had grown hard, and God's face has turned away from them in judgment. They look upon the story of the fox and the grapes, and they say, that was a nice story. What's for lunch? How do the parables show God's judgment? Well, God is judging them by withholding knowledge from them. And it doesn't mean that the facts aren't available, does it? They can go back themselves and they can read Exodus and they can read 2 Samuel, which Jesus indicated they aren't doing. The facts are there. They can look around them at creation and understand the power and the might and the wisdom of God just as any man can. What this means is that God is leaving them in the darkness of their minds. He's choosing not to rescue them from depraved ignorance and to leave them in blindness. And so beginning with verse 13, look with me there. Jesus explained why He taught the crowds in parables. Notice He says there, this is why I speak to them in parables. 
Because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. What Jesus is, go, is doing here is quoting from Isaiah's prophecy. Now, how can he make this statement? Seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear. Well, it's precisely because of what he said earlier. I've come to you. I've cast out demons. I've healed men of leprosy. I've preached to you the kingdom. And what's happened? No one repented. No one repented. When he says this, Jesus is pointing to Isaiah's prophecy and he's teaching the Israelites in this way. They fulfilled the prophecy against them. And so remember the scene in Isaiah chapter 6. It's a, it is a stunning uh, moment. And there in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah himself as the prophet is caught up to the throne room of God. And you remember what he saw there? The train of God's robe filled the temple. And on either side of him, there were angels who were crying out what? Holy, holy, holy. And in that moment, <coughs> as God commissioned Isaiah to go out and preach the gospel, calling his people to repentance, God said this to him. He told Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and their eyes blind. God, in a, in a very simple way through Isaiah, would continue to pour knowledge upon them. Later on in Isaiah's gospel, what we find is that his, his words had become so simple that they said, who would go and listen to this simpleton preach? It isn't a matter of complexity in Isaiah's message. God pours out revelation upon them, but the more he gave, the less they understood, and seeing they did not perceive. In other words, in judgment against them, God justly gave them over to the hardness of their own hearts. And this judgment is evidenced by their failure to respond to Isaiah's preaching. They heard it, but they never repented. They never took it into their hearts. They never brought forth the fruit of it. In fact, what did they do to the prophets? They killed them. They saw, they heard, but they did not repent. And they saw, but they did not grow in love to God. So, going back then to Matthew chapter 13, what we see is that Jesus is quoting this, this passage from Isaiah 6. And he's teaching that his commission to preach the gospel to the people of Israel is like Isaiah's commission. You know, this starts to make sense when we remember now all the pronouncements of judgment that Jesus made against this unrepentant people. Their refusal to respond to His mighty works among them shows that their hearts are just as hard as their fathers. Christ is coming among them, again, as another prophet. You've had Joel. You've had Amos. You've had Daniel. You've had Isaiah. You've had Micah. You've had Habakkuk. And here is Jesus, another prophet in a long line of prophets. And what do we find? The same response. 
truly, they are a children of snakes, sons of the evil one content to do his will. And so you see, in, in, in a way, the, the parables are a parable themselves. Think about this with me just for a second. Every parable contains truth. And we're, we're going to find that as we go through these seven parables on the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Every single one of those parables contains truth. They are, in a sense, tr- truth hidden in plain sight. Like the Easter eggs that we had for the children out here on the lawn. And, and every parable demonstrates how an unregenerate man interacts with the truth around him. You see, Jesus would conclude the parable of the sower and the truth is contained in it. It's there. But the people of Israel lacked the ability to see it and the will to desire it. They couldn't see it and they didn't want it. The blindness that naturally lies upon our minds prevents us from perceiving the world as it truly is. So, what do we conclude? Well, I must be the center of the world. The hardness that lies upon man's heart prevents him from making the effort to search the truth out. Jesus said to him, "Come, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. How few came. Unregenerate man is content to live in a world in which he imagines himself to be the center. Some might, some might consider this and they will say, well, but what about the disciples? They came. Didn't, didn't the disciples come? They, they seem to have the will. They seem to have the ability. They came and they asked Christ. Weren't they also subject to this supposed blindness? Yes. Every single man by nature fails to perceive the truth. He fails to live in light of a created reality. The difference is the disciples sought Jesus. They asked him to explain these things to them. And they illustrate the difference. Here is the difference in every believer's life. When the Holy Spirit is operating in a man's heart, the first sign is he wants to know the truth. He desires for it. He yearns for it. Just as a baby yearns for his mother's milk, the Scriptures say, we long for truth. We long to feed upon it. I want Jesus to teach me. There's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And in this search for truth, we wind up in the only place that it can be found which is at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think each of us, we have to ask a question of ourselves. Do you find within yourself a yearning to know the truth? Do you find yourself, as you're reading the Scriptures, sitting at the feet of Jesus, asking Him to teach you to unveil those things which you wrongly believe and hold to? Has the Spirit of God given you a will 
Think about this. The will to seek these things out. To study them. Do you, do you find that you're continuing to grow and mature in your understanding of the truth? And if not, the question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why don't I find within myself this longing? Perhaps the stupor of Israel is there. Scripture is, is quite clear that the hardening of judgment that had come upon Israel was only a partial hardening. That's according to Romans 11.25. In other words, God hasn't hardened every Jew. Did you know that? God hasn't hardened every single ethnic Jew. It's a partial hardening. How do we know this? Well, every day, ethnic Jews are being redeemed and converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day, many hear the gospel of Christ and are converted. In fact, at our home church back in Millbrook, Alabama, one of our elders had grown up an ethnic Jew, was converted to Christ. They become true sons of Abraham, sons according to the faith. In fact, our own confession, it teaches us when you pray for the coming of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what you're praying for. You're asking the Lord to convert Jewish people. This is an important part of our prayers. We pray this, why? Because as Paul said in, a Romans, in Romans 11, 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He does not promise and then take it away. In Jesus' day, we see this promise demonstrated. How? Because He called to Himself 12 men and gave them the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Ethnic Jewish men. And this brings us then to our third and, and last uh, purpose of the parables. Not only do they demonstrate the sovereignty of God and the judgment of God, they also demonstrate God's kindness, His favor toward the disciples. Paul when he's writing Romans chapter 11, and remember 9 and 10 and 11 of Romans are all about the future of Israel and, and the engrafting of Gentiles into this, uh, as a wild olive tree into the domesticated olive tree. Paul opens 11 with a poignant question. He says, I ask them, has God rejected his people? You know what he answers? By no means. Then he points out that he himself is an Israelite. And looking at Matthew chapter 13, verses 16 to 17, we see something very similar. Although the crowds seem to demonstrate no interest in Christ, you know what he did? He preserved a remnant. God never forgets his covenant promises, ever. By calling the twelve disciples and launching the ministry of the new covenant through them, Jesus demonstrated that God's promises had not failed, nor will they ever fail. You think about Jesus there, and he's standing with this small contingent of men and women around him who are asking him to explain 
the, the secrets of the kingdom, what are you telling us? Jesus says to them, blessed are your eyes, blessed are your ears. The eyes and ears of many were blind and deaf, but here there were some who heard and some who saw. They, they saw the miracles of Christ with their own eyes. They saw his mighty work and they heard the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And as we work through the parables of Matthew 13, that's going to be the theme. You and I, over the next few weeks, are going to see the secrets of the kingdom of heaven revealed to us. And do you know what one of the great mysteries of the kingdom of heaven is? One of the great mysteries is that God's redemptive plan has always included the salvation of the nations. Do you remember God's promise to Abraham? If we go back to Genesis chapter 12, where God called Abram and he said, look, go away from here, I'm going to show you a place. And Abram took all of his belongings and his nephew Lot, and they left, not knowing the place where God would take them. And there was one particular promise that God had given to Abram that we, we, we remember that he was going to make his name great. But in Genesis 12, 3, God said, And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so as we think about we could turn over to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. We notice that the great mystery... Paul says has been revealed in Ephesians 3, 6 that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, not separate heirs, not distinct heirs, not heirs with their own inheritance, fellow heirs. The promises that belong to Israel belong to you. Fellow partakers in the promise in Christ through the gospel. It's this great mystery that Jesus said, Many prophets and many righteous men had longed to see. In God's kindness, he revealed it to the apostles and they declared it to the world. Do you know what this means? This means that you and I have a great responsibility. First, you have a responsibility to pray. We ought to pray for Israel the ethnic Jewish people. You recognize that they continue to hold a dear place in God's heart. And so we should pray for them. We should pray for their peace and safety and that they would embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, never cease to marvel at God's mercy toward you. Many people swim across this English channel of life Swimming in the depths of God's revelation, and they never perceive where they are. Every day, if you only wonder at one thing, wonder that Almighty God would draw you to Himself. And use that wonder, that sense of awe to cultivate a deep and abiding love for Christ and His infinite wisdom. The, the parables are, are wonderful teaching tools and we're going to see that. Through them, God, He engages our imagination. 
He draws us into a story and through it he reveals eternal truths to us. However, if you understand and faithfully apply the principles of the parables, give thanks to God. The parables have not engaged you to understand. Rather, understanding the parables, you must give thanks for the work of the Holy Spirit. He he has given you both the will and the ability to know what these parables mean. They demonstrate God's sovereignty over knowledge, His judgment against Israel, and His divine favor to His people. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that You have chosen to reveal these things to babes, as it were. Help us, O Lord, always to remain, in a sense, babes at Your feet, clamoring for understanding, basking in the faith that You have given to us in the Word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.